the Team Builder Playbook, bite-sized, honest, and practical tips and strategies for building and scaling your team as a startup entrepreneur. Hey guys, Lisa here. I hope you're having an amazing start to the new year. I know I am. And just last week, I presented an amazing workshop called The Art of Team Building in downtown Portland to a small group of entrepreneurs and people who are building their teams within bigger companies. So I thought I would share with you guys the mistakes that I talked about and that the group found really helpful so that it could serve you as well. So the fundamental difference I found between the entrepreneurs who attract amazing talent and build very strong teams and the ones who end up building weaker teams and getting a lot of churn is that the people who do it really well understand that hiring and building a team is not about the how, it's not about the what, it is about the who. What I mean by that is that the stronger your leadership as an entrepreneur, the stronger the team that you will attract. This is a simple concept, but it is not intuitive and it's not straightforward to a lot of us who've gone through schooling, through training, through working for somebody else and who've been conditioned to believe that the most important part of building a company, building a team is knowing where to find the people, what skills they need for us to hire them, how to hire them, what interview questions to ask, and all of these mechanical questions. And it really boils down to the Pareto principle, otherwise known as the 80-20 principle, which states that 80% of the outcome is achieved with 20% of the work, 20% of the effort. So it's really understanding that leverage and understanding what part of your team building activities are generating the highest results. And in my experience, that 20% that is critical is your own leadership, your own confidence, how you, how well you understand not just what where you're going and what you're looking to accomplish as a company, but your vision. You understand the bigger picture. So that brings me to the first mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs do when they hire, and that is not articulating the vision and not articulating in a way that in, makes people enthusiastic, fires them up, and gets them excited to work with you. What do I mean by that? For example, I talked to a recruiter at Instacart, and when I talked to her, it was very interesting. She, I believe, was head of or head of recruiting at the time, and when I talked to her, I really was having a hard time understanding how Instacart could be anything other than just you know convenience. Here I'm saving some time to do the groceries and I'm having them delivered to my doorstep, period. And what she said really stuck with me because she articulated a vision that went into the freedom, the concept of freedom to do whatever you want with your time and also to transform your relationship with food, with the items that you use for your household to make your life not just easier, but also freer and more enjoyable. And that really spoke to me. 
And this is the power of how you can transform even the simplest product or even the simplest product proposition to something much bigger. When I worked at Zynga, what I was doing is I was designing features, designing parts of the product, and really optimizing certain business metrics like how many daily active users we would get, how many purchases, the revenue dollars that we would get from those features. But what Zynga was all about, what their articulated vision was, at least in the early days when the company was strong and growing, was connecting people through games, making friends through games. That was early days of social gaming, if you remember about a dozen years ago. And that was the beginning of people interacting very heavily online on social networks, social media. This was before Facebook was really a media platform. Facebook did not know what it was at the time. It was just a platform for a lot of developers. And the gaming sector was very rapidly growing. And I remember Facebook at the time had a whole segment of their company just really working hard to promote game developers on the platform. So if Zynga and Instacart can articulate a vision that goes beyond the actual product that they are selling, where can you go beyond the product that you're making or the service that you're providing to articulate the vision? What is your big picture dream for the company? What does this company get to create? And some concepts that I find helpful to think about when you go through this exercise is think of not in terms of what it will do, but what kind of feeling will it create with people? Think of emotions, feelings that your product or your company will evoke when this person hears about it. And also think of movements. Movements are one level higher than companies and products. And successful movements have at their core a belief, a dream, a vision. So really take the time to sit down, even for five minutes, do it right now, pause the podcast, and write down what is the vision for your company or for your team. What are you creating in the world that's bigger than the product, bigger than the service? So that's mistake number one. Mistake number two is the absence of clarity and preparation for the role. And this is a big one and it's a tricky one. I find that this is the one that slips under most people's radar most of the time. And what do I mean by not preparing or not having clarity about the role? If you worked for a company, you may be familiar with the scenario. There's a role that opens up on your team and... Uh, somebody's going to get hired, they're going to be somebody's boss. And there's not a whole lot of understanding about what their responsibilities are going to be, who they're going to be necessarily in charge of, what their purview, what their field of play is going to be in the company, and how it relates to other teams is their overlap. Also within the team, does that mean that somebody else's role will change as a result? When there's no conversation with the rest of the team and when there's no conversation with the other stakeholders in the company, there's a lot of confusion that can arise and that breeds fear because people start being suspicious and thinking that if you're not telling them 
what is going to happen if they're going to lose part of their job or if their responsibilities are going to shrink or if you will be giving part of your team away to this new person. What can happen is that people will start assuming the worst. They'll start assuming that this is indeed the worst case scenario is what will happen. And they start, they start in the best case, they start just being worried and gossiping. In the worst case, they start looking, looking for a new role or a new job, looking outside the company. So how to avoid that? You definitely don't want to create confusion and make people who are already on your team feel uncertain or threatened. The best way to do that, I found, especially if you're growing teams from scratch and if if you're not just replacing, but you're creating a new role, this is especially critical for you. It's so important to sit down and write a almost like a job description or a role definition for each part of the team and including for the new role that's being created. And that is important, especially if you're creating a new level. For example, I've built a lot of product teams from scratch and what would happen a lot is I would need to create levels of you know, an associate product manager, product manager, a senior product manager, product director. What does each one of those levels look like? And what I found is that when I sat down and articulated it and got feedback and input from the team and made it into collaborative project, there was a lot of buy-in. And there was also a lot of buy-in for the role that we needed to fill in one of those levels. And here's the best part. People that were in other places and other levels of the role, they now knew what it would take from them to get to the next level. They knew the skills that they were lacking or the experience that they still needed to get. And they became really focused on that. And that helped us during kind of the weekly performance evaluations, uh, the weekly catch-up calls, or the quarterly performance evaluations, because now we could talk about something concrete. If something was going well, or if something was missing, and we could measure and evaluate each component for the person, for them to get to the next level. So it's so important to have that clarity and preparation with the whole team and with all of the stakeholders. Again, that will avoid churn, that will avoid people being suspicious, gossiping, being afraid for their own jobs. Mistake number three is one that I've seen happen a lot of times with roles while in Silicon Valley would be with engineers or with technical positions that are really in demand and there is a relative kind of imbalance of power where a lot of the good engineers have a lot of offers coming at them, have a lot of options, so they have the so-called buying power. That imbalance of power exists in other functions as well. I've definitely seen it very, very strongly with technical talent in product-based startups. And what happens when there's this power imbalance is that you as an entrepreneur or the hiring manager start getting nervous and start getting really focused on getting or attracting this one person, or there are fewer candidates or fewer people who come to interview. So you feel pressured to hire, to get 
to convince, you start becoming desperate to convince one of those few people to come join because you need somebody right now or even yesterday. So what ends up happening is you as an entrepreneur could be tempted to go into pitching during the interview conversations and not really do what I find is most helpful and prevents a lot of problems down the road, and that is listening, really deeply listening, being able to turn your mind away from distractions and focusing on the person in front of you, what they're saying, what's behind what they're saying, why they're saying what they're saying, truly understanding and be curious in your mind, listening not just to the words, but to the music behind the words, listening to the listening. What that accomplishes is that that gives you a lot of information, that gives you the informational advantage. There will be times for you to get the person enthusiastic about the company and what you're all about. But this is a critical time, especially during the first one or two interviews, is for you to collect as much information as possible. Because most of the time, you will find something that will really calibrate whether or not this person may be the right fit early on. And you will not be going down the line so much with them and investing hours of your time and your team's time to only discover a deal breaker or something that, you know, is not a fit. Maybe this person cannot relocate their family to where your company is, or maybe, maybe they just really are not a team player and the role that you want them to fill requires very, very strong relationship skills. So I found that entrepreneurs who kind of go into the pitching mode, go into that desperation because they need to fill butts and seats, end up hiring fast and firing slow, which is the recipe for disaster, especially for an early stage company, growth company. You really want to be selective about who you take on the bus. One of the startups I worked with, the CEO used to say, It really doesn't matter where the bus is going. It really matters who's on the bus and being very selective about who you let on the bus. So that's mistake number three. Mistake number four is hiring fast and then settling instead of holding out. So I just mentioned this being the kind of anathema or the kiss of death for a lot of companies. And I've seen that, unfortunately, because what ends up happening is if you hire the wrong people, they will stick around as long as conditions are tolerable or they're getting paid. But if your company hits a rough patch and there needs to be a little bit of a um, of a team effort to pull through that difficult period, whether it is a temporary cut in compensation or if there's some other measures that need to be put in place like longer hours or more work for a certain person, that will only be possible if people are really bought into your vision, if they're there for the right reasons, if they believe in you and if they believe in the company and they believe in each and every other person on the team. And it's so important to have them really be believing in everybody else on the team because a bad apple can really spoil the whole bucket. 
And I've seen that many times. Anytime a rough patch hits, the downward spiral can really be accelerated by people leaving, people not being incentivized, feeling like they are working for the wrong the wrong reasons, for the wrong product. If they really don't believe in you or the company, they just won't stick around. So it's so important to hire slow as opposed to hire fast. And conversely, fire fast versus fire slow. And it's so difficult to do. I believe that this is the most difficult part of the hiring process to get right for a lot of entrepreneurs because when you get on this growth trajectory, especially if things are finally clicking, if you're getting traction, the worst thing, the worst nightmare for any entrepreneur is turning away business, not to be able to grow as fast as the market demand is is growing. There's a very strong tendency to to hire just anybody to fill the space and train them later or figure out another person later. I remember when I was interviewing at Zynga, Zynga was exploding. I joined when there were only about 300 people and a few months down the line, there were already a thousand people. Uh, I remember one of my classmates from business school who is now the CEO of a company in the Bay Area told me, hey, you can you can interview there because they literally are looking for anybody with arms and legs. Of course, he was exaggerating, but I remember thinking that it certainly felt like they were onto something and they were just getting people, talented people through the door as soon as possible. Their interview process was very intense and they grilled me very, very intensely. There's no, I don't think that they would have hired just anybody, but this was before they were going to college campuses. This was before they had organized recruiting processes. So they were just scrambling to find people wherever they could to keep up with growth. And finally, mistake number five is this one I talked about in an earlier episode as a strategy that I highly recommend. And a lot of people don't do it. Instead, they they commit this mistake, which is not trying before buying. What do I mean by that? So as you're getting close to hiring somebody, maybe you've narrowed down the candidates to two or three people that are in the final round. I highly, highly recommend that you do one of the following. Either give them a homework assignment that will demonstrate how they would operate in their real role or demonstrate part of what their role would be. Or you give them a paid trial or a free trial, not a free trial, but an unpaid trial. What could that look like? In the trial scenario, you can have somebody, if they're, for example, you're hiring an assistant, and I did that with my assistant, you can have a couple of the candidates, you can offer them to work for you for a week and to do tasks that you would normally have them do as part of the regular job. And the most interesting part is what would happen is that a lot of people would drop out. And not a lot of people, but some people would drop out at that stage because there's a certain entitlement and there's also fear. People don't like to be compared. They don't like their performance to be evaluated. And you don't want that type of person working for you. If they're just going to be entitled and if they don't want to be to get any feedback, 
if they don't want to stand by their results and their performance. It's interesting. It happens all the time. People do not take the assignment. They don't want to do the extra work. Especially now, if you're asking them to do some work for free, that also has the benefit. Like, let's say you have a lot of candidates and you're really looking for a way to whittle down to maybe one or two, maximum three people, giving them the opportunity to do some work for you and demonstrate what they're able to accomplish is a great way to screen for the right players. Or the homework assignment, like I mentioned earlier, could just be a take-home homework assignment for them to uh, produce a product or a prototype. This is great for engineers. It's great for designers, product people. Maybe even somebody who's assisting you who you know will produce copy for you or some marketing assets. There could be a lot of scenarios on this one. And what is very interesting here is that I've talked to, to people who are building teams and there is sometimes resistance even on behalf of the hiring manager or the entrepreneur to test somebody. And the more I dig into that, the more I understand that the reluctance is not so much about the getting the additional information and putting people through a performance test, but it is a lot of times the entrepreneur, the hiring manager is just so swamped and so pressed on time that they feel very reluctant to dedicate the hours that it will take to be there for somebody, construct the homework assignment or supervise or monitor people as they're going through the trial phase and then analyze all the output and the results. It, it is it is like a project. It does take a bit of your time. And that is one of the reasons why I highly recommend doing a very short homework assignment, like maybe give them 48 hours to complete it. Or in the case of a paid trial, don't do more than a week or two weeks because it really then it becomes a drag and becomes almost like a part-time job for them and for you. What you want to do is you want to be very specific. You want to give them as many constraints as possible. So for example, if somebody is working for you for a week, you can specify the number of hours you want them to spend, the maximum number of hours. So you have a good baseline to compare people across the board, what they've produced for, let's say, five or 10 hours of work. And the other important part of this setup is that it's important for you to not lay it out for them on a silver platter, which then helps you because you don't have to prepare, you don't have to brief them for as long, or you don't have to you know, give every single detail to them, which you can do. And it's very important to actually withhold part of the information or part of what you're going to be evaluating them on in terms of criteria, because that's part of what I'm looking for when I do these is I'm looking for how the person communicates with me throughout the trial and what questions they ask. And I'm looking for them to ask for the missing information. A lot of times I'm looking for them to take the initiative and ask for something that I know is very important that they would need to take the initiative on in their day job anyway. And so I'm kind of baking it in the process. This could be, for example, you can 
offer them the option to contact any of your team members while they're going through this and see who they talk to, what questions they ask, how they interact with them. This could be you know, not giving them too much detail on the constraints of what they're designing if they're a designer or a product person and waiting for them to come back and ask you clarifying questions and really seeing what clarifying questions are they asking. Are they asking you for direction or are they asking you for clarification or are they coming up with an idea and then checking in with you if that is consistent with the constraints? Or it's, and I've seen this happen several times, it's really funny, or you will actually notice that they go silent during the first, you know, 90% of the time period, and then they kind of crank it out in the last minute. And so you get a barrage of questions at like 10 p.m. the night before it's due. And that gives you a ton of information about the person. And then you can, you can evaluate in a much more holistic way, whether somebody is going to work out or not. So that's the bottom line. Those are the five key mistakes that entrepreneurs make and how to avoid them. And if you like this podcast, I would love for you to share it with others who would find this episode or this podcast beneficial. And also subscribe, subscribe, leave me a review. Let me know what you like what you don't like, what you want more of. And finally, if you're somebody who's struggling through some of these stages of building a team and you'd like to talk more, feel free to reach out to me at lisa at athenastrategypartners.com. That is Athena, like the goddess, A-T-H-E-N-A, athenastrategypartners.com. And I would love to hop on a call with you and chat and see how does this apply to you and your specific situation. That is all for me for today. I'm sending you lots of love and I hope you have an amazing day. 